Okay, here we go. Thank you for tuning in all out there in video land, internet video land. We're going to be talking all about the big three bridge loan effort, starting with uh, John Neff from Autoblog, Chris Pockert, formerly of Winding Road, now of Autoblog 2, and Mike DeShane from CarAndDriver.com. Great to have you all here for what is at least for us a very historic live webcast. We've never tried this sort of thing before, but uh, and we'll be taking your questions too. In fact, you might want to look on your screen right now. There's a, a place where you can hit enter chat and we'll be able to get your questions. But just to get this whole discussion going, Mike DeShane from CarAndDriver.com, let me start with you. What really came across in these hearings in Congress is people hate Detroit. They hate the big three. I mean, if folks weren't exposed to this before, they sure are now. So my question to you is, why do they hate Detroit so much? The Detroit car companies are now paying the price for all the bad cars they made 20 years ago. Um, the, their good deeds in the past five, 10 years of actually starting to make some really compelling products, uh, those haven't caught up yet in public perception. And unfortunately, there were some truly appalling vehicles in the 80s, and people remember those, and they're, they're bitter about them. John, how do you see it? You know. uh, exactly the same way, and it's a, it's, a, it's a total shame. I'd like to scream at the top of my lungs, go to a dealership right now, look at a Malibu or a Fusion. Um, Detroit is making good cars right now, and they're on their way to making more good cars. Um, and personally, I'd like to see them reach that point. Um, and this, these sins that they're paying for in the, uh, in the 80s and the 90s, they're deserved, but if people um, who are listening to the mainstream media and the attacks that are levied at Detroit, they would go to a dealership, they would see it's not what they are being told uh, it's like, um, and it's much better, in fact. So, And Chris, what do you see? I agree with both of uh, the perspectives that have already been laid out. Uh, I think automobiles are a unique purchase in that they're a long-term purchase. You, you hold on to them for several years, so they all the little nitpicks and, and problems that you have stand out over the long term. You have to get in it every day no matter what the weather is. It's not like you buy a new jacket or something and that's a one-time purchase that you may wear you know, a few dozen times and then uh, it, it goes away. So all of the bad products that uh, were foisted on uh, the American public back in the 70s and 80s uh, have left a really bad taste in, their, in everyone's mouth. Um, and coupled with the fact that the Japanese and the Germans uh, and now the Koreans have uh, made significant inroads and now make some really wonderful products. And, uh, the big three have really just not uh, managed to get the message out about the quality that they do have in dealerships right now. Mm -hmm. And again, if you're watching right now, you can submit questions. If you look on your uh, screen right now, it should say click here to enter chat if you want to click that on and you can uh, shoot some questions our way. But Mike DeShane, CarAndDriver.com, let me come back to you. One of the things that's really become apparent, too, is not only do they hate Detroit, not only do they hate the big three, boy, have they got it out for the UAW. Again, why are people just so up in arms against working class people trying to earn a decent living? Well, I think, I think that a lot of people who are up in arms are also working class people trying to earn a decent living, but the difference is they're not in unions. And so uh, I think for a lot of people who have no guarantee of a job, um, who may even themselves have been laid off or, or face the potential of being laid off. Uh, they look at the things that the union has in terms of uh, guarantees of, of good wages and um, up until quite recently uh, the expectation of a job bank continuing and they're a little bit bitter about those things and uh, the, they're, they're very quick to forget that the, the existence of those unions are what actually created the blue-collar middle class in this country. 
they set the standard for the entire industrial middle class. And so it's easy now to say, well, gee, you know, the things they have are, are totally ridiculous. And, and I think people see that because they, they don't realize that none of them would have any kind of middle class jobs if not for these unions fighting the fights they fought. You know, one thing that I see, uh, Chris, Chris Pockert from Autoblog, is that uh, I've talked to people on the West Coast about this, and the East Coast, but mainly the West Coast, that, you know, whenever there's a strike, what do they see on TV? They see this padlocked factory with a chain link fence, and the media always goes for the guys with the biggest beer guts out there, hang, <laughs> holding some big sign, unfair to labor, with a, a, a big steel barrel with, you know, wood in it, and the fire is going. And, and I've had people see that and say to me, those are the people who are building those cars? I don't want to buy cars from people who, you know, are, are buy cars made by people like that. How, how do you answer them? Uh, well, it's difficult because the major, major media centers in this country are in New York, they're in L.A., uh, Washington, D.C. Um, for a lot of people, Michigan and a lot of the auto-producing states are flyover states. Um, so they really only get that picture that's... Um, you know, really an unfair, unfair portrayal of uh, what goes on and what goes into these vehicles. Um, and it, they would probably see similar things that are coming out of other factories uh, in the South from Toyota or, or what have you. Certainly in Germany, too. Certainly Talk about Germany. beer breaks. Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> they sell beer in the plant. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it, it's very, very difficult. Um, and, you know, they've clearly, uh, the automakers in Detroit have clearly disenfranchised the bulk of, of America's buying public. Um, and when you end up with that situation, it's really, really hard to win people back, especially when companies like Toyota have been so masterful in uh, creating a green image and, and a uh, kind of a... Well, not only that, I mean, if you go into the Toyota plants or the Honda plants or the Nissan sure. plants, everybody wears uniforms. Mm -hmm. You know, they're in nice blue pants and a white shirt and wearing a hat and all that, and the Americans come dressed like I would want right. to do. Right. Any way you want to go dressed is how you can show up. Sure, the it's plan. still like the gung-ho movie from yeah. the 80s, right? <laughs> right. John, how, how, how would you, Well, how do you view the whole thing? You know, I think right now the general public is getting the perception that the, the union really uh, took advantage of the Detroit automakers for uh, many decades and, and got so much out of them, uh, way more than the average middle-class worker in a cubicle somewhere is getting. Yeah, you know, with these great healthcare packages and, and the potential to earn, earn so much per hour. Um, and who, regardless of whose fault it was, whether it was the automaker's fault for letting them have so much or the union's fault for asking so much, it happened. And it's coming home to roost now that they're going to the government asking for money. You know, the question is, why did, why did you guys go after so much for yourselves to the point that you endangered the company that, that actually um, pays your bills? And I think they're still doing that, to be fair. But, but that's also human nature. And, and again, it's easy to say, to, to, I mean, you're talking about fault as though at the time it was actually a bad thing. The fact of the matter is that those relatively generous union agreements are what allowed the economy to prosper. They're what allowed a, a, a large middle class people to become upper middle class and to go out and buy things and to make the economy grow. And those people could then go out and spend money on electronics and cars and homes. So the notion that, that if only, you know, if only the, the, those people had only been paid less all along, we'd be okay now, we might be in a very different situation now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good point. For those of you who are just tuning in maybe, uh, we're talking all about the live here about the, the big three having to go to Washington to get a bridge loan to try and survive. I'm joined by John Neff from Autoblog, Chris Pockert from Autoblog, and Mike DeShane from CarAndDriver.com.
John, let me come back to you. One of the things that is coming out of this is General Motors has got to get rid of brands. I mean, those of us who have been critiquing this industry for so long have said they got way too many brands. Mm -hmm. So GM has said, yeah, okay, as part of any restructuring, uh, we think that we'll hold on to Chevy and Cadillac and GMC and Buick and I've been getting all kinds of people asking me, what are they, nuts? What are they holding on to Buick for? You know, why, why are they talking about getting rid of Saturn? What's your view on that? Uh, we have this conversation every day, it seems. I mean, I would argue, you know, why keep GMC when basically every product GMC has is a rebad Chevy? Um, and, you know, you can basically, it's, it's armchair quarterbacking. I mean, I don't know that there is, we're going to find out what the right answer is, which brands to, to drop and which to keep. Um, I, you know, for, uh, from my opinion, Chevy and Cadillac are the big ones. No I brainers. Want. No I brainers. I mean, you keep those. Yeah. Saturn, it's almost to the point where it's too expensive to get rid of. I mean, you know, it costs so much money to actually kill a brand, which is what they found out with Oldsmobile, um, that what do you do at this point? I mean, it's literally a lose-lose situation, and you got to pick the one that's going to hurt the less, or hurt the least. Um, so, you know, uh, trimming down Pontiac to, to a, a niche brand, I kind of like that idea. You know, I'm a huge fan of the G8 GT, and I want that around as long as possible at yeah. the moment. Um, but Buick, uh, that, that is, it's a tough brand to slot in between Chevy and Cadillac, um, despite how well it's doing elsewhere in the world, particularly in China. Um, you know, it'll survive there regardless. Um, but like I said, it's, it, we're, we're going to be armchair quarterbacking that deci these decisions about what GM should do with its brands uh, until they, they actually pull the trigger and do something. Yeah. And likely well beyond. Yeah. yeah. And what do you think about it all? I mean, Well, I think, I think the Buick brand in particular has to exist in some form in the U.S. to uh, further the notion in China that it's still a prestige brand because uh, a lot of people don't realize that GM sells more Buicks in China than in the U.S. And so that's, Buick is a very important brand for GM from a global perspective. And that's why it's not going to evaporate anytime soon. But it may mean that there are very few new products here, that there's very little actual marketing put behind it. And so what's important to think about is which brands are going to survive, meaning there will continue to be some cars sold with that, uh, with that badge on them, and which cars are actually, which brands are going to be supported by the manufacturer. It's likely that beyond Chevy and Cadillac, uh, there's not going to be really significant marketing behind any of the brands, and they're just going to make them so that they don't have to pay the dealers billions of dollars to, right. to close. Well, I think as part of any restructuring deal in terms of getting government money, this cars are that it looks like they're going to put in place will have the legal authority to tell the car companies, hey, you can just walk away from your franchise agreements. Because I don't see, to your point, John, it cost them a fortune to close down Oldsmobile. Mm -hmm. So even though they've got to close down more brands, if it costs you a fortune, you can't even afford to do what's killing you from a cost standpoint. Well, that's really the $64,000 question is how much authority is this cars are going to have? I mean, if this person is basically going to be able to walk into the situation and allow GM and Chrysler to do what they could, would normally only be able to do in bankruptcy, uh, that's going to change the whole game. I mean, I mean, basically everybody wants them to be in a state where they can walk to every single one of their partners, their creditors, their dealers, the UAW, and just wipe the slate clean and say, we have to start over. You can't do that in the real world. You can only do that in bankruptcy. But if a car czar walks in and says, every relationship you have with everyone is dissolved, let's start over. I mean, that's, that opens it all up. Yeah, we'll have to get into that in a minute. But, you know, getting back to your point on GMC, you know, why GMC? Because it's complete overlap with Chevrolet. I gotta believe the only reason they're keeping it is 
it makes money. You know, and it, it, you make big profit on those trucks, and even if it overlaps with Chevrolet, if it's making money, why it all, kill it? It all comes back to the dealers, because when you, when you have a dealership that has Buick, Pontiac, and GMC, you, you need trucks in there, and you can't bring in Chevy because Chevy has their own dealers. So when, when you start consolidating your dealers, and they, they start clamoring for trucks because that's what was selling, you know, in the 90s, um, that, there's a great reason to have GMC, because then you can stick it with other brands like Buick and Pontiac. Uh, but if they are truly consolidating, um, then I think Chevy has enough, you know, cachet and pull to stand on its own, just like Ford does, you know, with only making the F-150. I know they made a couple Lincoln trucks, but, you know, nothing like GMC. Um, and they should let Chevy run with the trucks and SUVs, in my opinion. Yeah, no, well, what people should realize, too, is Chevrolet alone accounts for 60% of all GM sales in the United States. So, I mean, it, it, it's huge. And, in fact, if you do... Chevy and Cadillac together, and if you throw GMC in there and keep Buick too, that's like 80% of GM's volume right there. So you, you knock off a few brands, but you don't lose as many as much volume as you would think knocking off so many brands. No, they're, they're kind of the fringe brands, you know. I mean, they're the obvious ones you knocked off, knock off because of their volume. But you, but you also raise an important issue, which is that even if they only lose 20%, 20% is a lot a volume for them to lose and that's why they haven't just done this because of a the expense of doing it but b the fear that if they knock off particularly a premium brand like Saab well it may not sell a lot of cars but what are the chances that a potential Saab buyer is actually going to go and buy a Cadillac instead pretty yeah, slim pro probably pretty slim but I mean uh, Saab only sells 120,000 cars a year around the whole world 120,000 cars that's one half of one assembly plant so I know what you're saying of, boy, if you knock off 20% of your volume, that's a lot. But if it's all losing money, who right. cares? Right. But that, it, that's exactly right. Who, who cares? But GM has this mentality that for years they've seen their market share slide. And it's taken them a long time to realize that profitability is more important than market share. And that's been true of all the big three because uh, these guys still remember when they commanded, you know, 50% of the U.S. market. So the notion that maybe 20% or less is more realistic is pretty painful. Yeah. Sure. A lot of those guys still have their pins. Yeah. <laughs> the Ford pins. You're yeah, the yeah. 25. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Chris Pockert, Autoblog. Uh, what would you do with uh, Pontiac? GM says it's not going to kill it off, but it's going to slim it down to just a niche brand that I guess would help complement Buick and GMC, which are all grouped well, I, under one roof now. Right, and I think that's the only thing you really can do with Pontiac if you're resigned to keeping those other, other brands in the same dealerships. If you're resigned to keeping Buick online, if you're resigned to keeping GMC, um, I, to the point about um, people moving between brands, yes, if, if you are a Saab buyer, um, you're not going to sit there and cross-shop a Cadillac necessarily, and you're certainly not going to do it with a Chevrolet. GMC owners, I'm not so sure they wouldn't just say, oh, I could just go to Chevrolet. It's the same basic product. Right, right. Um, I, the, the most troublesome thing for me, and, and not to kind of uh, hijack the conversation, is uh, what they've done with Saturn. Um, and basically, they had a really unique product. Um, actually, the ownership experience and the buying experience was more unique than the product themselves. Um, and they, they built a tremendous brand awareness and loyalty, uh, and then they built another Oldsmobile. They built another full-line manufacturer, which they absolutely didn't need. Um, and now they're, you know, now Saturn is a dead brand walking. And the, um, the sad part is that 
in the past two years, they've completely revamped the product line. So, and right. GM does this over and over. Mm -hmm. They finally get something really right, and now the Saturn product is really right. It's right. A but great what do they line. do? They, they they turn around and they shortchange the Chevrolet dealerships, so yeah. who just finally got the Lambda crossover with, uh, you know, with the Traverse. Yeah. It was something that that's their volume dealer. That product should have been in there first because that's where it can do the the greatest amount of good, um, and. GM tends to focus on one brand and, and you know renovating one brand at a time. For a long time, it was Cadillac, and obviously Cadillac they've done a bang up job with, and the CTS is a wonderful car. Um, Saturn got a huge infusion of product and cash, and you know really what are the results? Um, yeah. there, there's nothing. Doesn't this come back to the argument? They have too many brands. You, you can't concentrate on eight different brands absolutely. with 20% market share for them all put together. Right. And, and every good Saturn product is really a rebadged version of something else mm -hmm. sold elsewhere. The the Aura is really a Malibu. The Sky is really a Solstice. Mm -hmm. The the uh, the Outlook is actually a Traverse. I mean, they're all just. Sure. They're, they're cars people can buy elsewhere. Right, and if you had all of those marketing dollars that are getting chopped up for all these different brands and you were able to funnel them into to one or two brands, I think you'd really see a much leaner, meaner, and more competitive and more visible General Motors. So I know what John Neff from Autoblog wants. He wants the G8 Pontiac. Don't, don't <laughs> take that away. What, what else would be in your ideal Pontiac lineup? Uh, I'd probably keep the, the <coughs> Solstice around just to bolster, you know, the image of <laughs> we build excitement as, you know, the old tagline used to be. Um, you know, having them make uh, mid-size uh, sedans, uh, economy cars, I mean, that should never have happened, really. Um, that's just, re again, recreating what Chevy is already doing and Saturn's already doing. Um, so I'd probably pare it down to just the G8 GT or did the G8 and um, and the Solstice. Keep it performance and performance only. Mike DeShane, CarAndDriver.com, what, what would be your ideal Pontiac lineup? I'd agree with that completely. Uh, also, Just two cars? Yeah, I mean, because, because Pontiac doesn't have to exist unto itself. Pontiac can be a niche brand. Every dealer that has Pontiac also has Buick, and it also has GMC. So there's no reason that Buick can't make a few sedans uh, to complement the brand and and that's it, because everything else they have is just a slightly poorer version of something else sold by GM elsewhere. Right. So what about Ford? Uh, uh, Chris Pockert with Autoblog, let me come to you. Did, did, has Ford pared down enough getting rid of Jaguar and Land Rover and Aston Martin? There's talk maybe Volvo will go, but what do you think? Uh, would you stick with Ford, Lincoln, Mercury, and Volvo? Well, I would probably broom Mercury as soon as possible. Um, I think a lot of the money that's gone into the development of Mercury, even if that's just the waterfall badges and, and hiring Jill Wagner as their spokesmodel, <laughs> I, I think that money would be better spent at Lincoln. Um, Lincoln has sort of watched as, as Cadillac Star has risen as the American luxury brand, and they have a proud heritage. They've done a lot of really great concepts that they could have put into production or something similar uh, that would have really uh, raised their profile. Uh, there's, what is there, one Mercury standalone dealer, or maybe that's even closed at this point. Um, I know that they need the volume, and that's why they've kept the, both divisions around, but I really don't see uh, any palpable differences between a Ford product and a Mercury product. But what about this idea of bringing European product over? And we know we're going to get the Fiesta as a Ford right. and, and some variation of the Mondeo. I don't know if that's the next Taurus or, or what's going on exactly, but... Why not bring over some of this European product, even if you make it here, and have that as Mercury so you have real differentiation? Would well, that make sense to you? Because it's, you're probably going to need to slim down the number of platforms you build off of anyway. 
uh, and you might as well be sending the best product, which a lot of that product is their best product, send it into your volume dealerships. Again, the same way that we talked about Saturn getting some of the, the, the first crack at some of their best products, and then later it's trickling into the volume Chevrolet dealerships. Why re repeat that cycle? Right. Right. John, what about you? No, I mean, I agree completely. In terms of the European stuff, um, I think you actually wrote an editorial on this, and, and just to change the subject a little, you know, the best, <clears throat> excuse me, the best thing the government could do right now to help the automakers is to suspend the regulations that make uh, emissions and safety standards so different in the U.S. from Europe. If, if they literally did a moratorium for three, four, five years and said, we're just going to adopt the European standards so you have time to bring all of that good product over here, uh, product that, you know, is safe and, and is very um, clean, um, you know, they'd be able to sell these cars uh, that are much better than the ones, uh, many of the ones that we have right now um, and would significantly lower their costs. Um, but instead, right now, we have extremely strict emission standards uh, and in some cases, two different emission standards depending on what state you're in. Uh, and it takes, it costs, you know, tens of millions of dollars just to engineer a diesel engine um, to meet all 50 states' requirements in the U.S. And, and automakers can't bring those green cars from Europe over at that price. And they can't bring over those stylish cars from Europe at that price. Um, so right now, you know, if the government really wanted to help the Detroit Three, that would be the number one thing yeah. they should do. And, and what people should understand, too, is we're not talking about bringing over grossly polluting cars or very no. unsafe ones. Their standards are so close to ours, and yet the cost of meeting our standards are still substantially above what it takes in Europe. Absolutely. I mean, for the longest time, their standards were well, uh, at least in terms of emissions, were, were much stricter than ours. And only in the recent two or three years, in terms of diesel, let's say, have, has the U.S. really leapfrogged Europe? I mean, for the longest time, we were satisfied with, you know, large uh, semi-trucks and, and big F-350s polluting with diesel engines uh, as much as they could. And now, you know, we're that little bit stricter than the Europeans. But there's, a, there's another issue with bringing over European cars, and even assuming that, uh, that, that you could bring them over intact and, and you could unify uh, emissions and, and crash standards. Let, let's assume that for a minute. The fact of the matter is that Europeans demand and will pay for significantly more complex and nicer vehicles. Mm -hmm. So there is no proven case of a global car doing well in Europe and doing well in the U.S. And I think that's where Ford uh, is a little bit off its mark and thinking that it can develop one car globally, even assuming they make a car like the Fiesta in Mexico and uh, for, for North American consumption, I'm not convinced that a car that nice and that small is actually going to be able to sell at a profit in the United States of America. And that same case is going to be true in, at every size level. That's why you've seen really successful companies like, say, Toyota, go away from sharing one car globally toward having, just to be blunt here, sort of a crappier version for the U.S. that costs them less to make and that they can sell at a lower price. Yeah, I think what people have got to understand is uh, two things. Number one, SUVs in this country have essentially subsidized the price of passenger cars. Mm -hmm. That's one reason they make so much money on, on SUVs. Secondly, to your point, Mike, uh, the price of cars in Europe is far higher than it is here. I mean, apples to apples, content to content, a Ford Focus in Europe is about $5,000 more expensive than a Ford Focus here. Yeah, the European one is nicer. It's five grand more. So will Americans be ready to, to, to pay that kind of price? And uh, let me come back to you, Chris Pocker from Autoblog. 
uh, especially when gas is under $2 a gallon again. Are people going to go for these high fuel efficient cars, which is exactly what Congress is mandating that the big three do more of mm -hmm. if they're going to get this bridge loan? Well, I think people will be more interested uh, in seeing them when they're on the showroom floors and when their neighbor has one and they can talk to their neighbor and say, you know, this Mini Cooper, you know, has done very well. It's not the same volume as, as you would find for a, you know, mainstream midsize sedan. Um, but that's certainly a, one vehicle that has done well globally with basically the same architecture. But that's a premium small right. brand. Right. Is, is Ford or Chevy going to be able to transform itself like that? And yeah. are people going to go out and say, wow, I really think the Ford Fiesta is a premium vehicle that I would crush up with a Mini Cooper? I don't buy that. Yeah, I, I, well, I was, yeah, I was getting to that point. I think that that's probably the same conundrum they're going to run into. Mm. Um, now, if you get enough of them on streets and, and out there and people actually you know, hear from their neighbors and their friends and they, they get that one-to-one -one experience with everybody, um, they, they will probably see the benefits. But for a long time, uh, you know, for American autom automobiles, it's been value by the pound. The, the bigger the vehicle, the better it is. And that's part of the reason why SUVs succeeded so well in, in full-size trucks. Um, they don't understand, uh, Americans don't necessarily understand as a group um, the benefits of small cars and small premium well, cars. Look at the cars that we have on the market right now that everybody was clamoring for. Right, but so many Americans are bigger by the pound themselves. Sure. I mean, Absolutely. they need bigger vehicles. Well, right, and, and we've had, um, you know, a number of European transplants that have come over here that the enthusiast crowd has notably said, bring it over here, we'll buy it, we'll buy it, we'll buy it. The Audi A3, the Volvo C30, those are just sitting around. Yeah. Nobody's mm -hmm. buying those cars. Right, right. well, it's the, they're the favorites of we in the media who write right. about these things. Hey, we've got a question here from a viewer, and I'll, I'll go to you, uh, John Neff from Autoblog. Uh, Gary Paul asks, why doesn't the UAW decide to immediately offer to take exactly the same salary and benefits and privileges and vacation days that the Toyota workers get at the transplants in this country? How, how would you answer that? Or Well, you know, they, they basically did say they would do that, but they said they wanted to do it through attrition by, by people leaving and hiring new workers you know, at that price level and at, the, at that benefit level. Um, why they won't do it immediately is, I think, uh, a question I, couldn't, I could only answer if I were Ron Gittlefinger myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, let, let's let these guys weigh in. Uh, Mike DeShane, CarAndDriver.com, what do you think? Well, we're, we're talking about real people here with real financial obligations, real jobs, and so on. And, and I think what the union sees is they're saying, well, okay, so eventually maybe we should get to this point. But today, why am I, the worker on the plant floor, being asked to almost single-handedly uh, deliver these concessions that will save this automaker when I have a mortgage payment to make based on the union contract that we just agreed upon? Um, and it, I think they think that as a part of a bigger picture, it would make sense, but in an 11th hour Senate negotiation where they're being asked suddenly, um, by the way, how would you feel about taking a 30% pay cut? Well, who among us would, would, would react favorably to such a request? <laughs> none of us. Yeah, absolutely none of us. Chris, what's your take on I completely on that? agree with what Mike says. Um, you know, you don't want to rank all the rank and file that are there right now. Um, it's one thing to kind of amend the benefit packages and the pay rates of future workers that aren't even there yet and don't know any better. It's quite another when Ron Gettlefinger has to go back to his base and say, hey, look, this is kind of what we've got to do. 
Plus, you know, to this point, there have been other options that are on the table. There's been the possibility of bankruptcy, and, and now there's the possibility of a White House bailout. And if they can kind of hold on and hold on and hold on, like they've done so many times before, right. they may actually, you know, see this thing through. Well, and let's, yeah. let's be clear, too, that you, you can't exactly pin down what a worker at at a, a transplant makes. You know, mm -hmm. there, there's many Toyota plants, there, there's Hyundai plants, there's Mercedes-Benz plants, um, and you can't, nobody can really say what, what the target is that the UAW should come down to. Mm -hmm. In some cases, these plants are actually paying more than what UAW workers get. So that, that target that they're, they're trying to tell the UAW you have to come down to is really one that moves all over the place. Um, so until, until somebody says people who build cars in the U.S. should make this amount of money across the board, I mean, we don't know what that level is. That's yeah. the cars are. Yeah, yeah, apparently. Well, my guess is, though, that the UAW is going to have to give up even more than it's given mm -hmm. up. Absolutely. And even if it just comes down to the best of the best Toyota plants, which looks like they're paying the highest, it's still going to have to come down from where it is today. I, I, I don't think there's any question about it. Here we've got a, another question from a Steve Salas, and I hope I'm saying that right. And uh, Mike DeShane from CarAndDriver.com, why don't I come to you with this one? He says, uh, the biggish big three need to go into bankruptcy, and the UAW needs to be dissolved. Okay, that, that, there's your opinion. But he asks a really good question. If they go into bankruptcy, would that be the end of the UAW? Well, it would probably be not only the end of the UAW, but the end of those companies. The notion that a car company can restructure in bankruptcy and, and actually pull out a bankruptcy at, at some point is deeply flawed, simply because people will not buy cars from a bankrupt automaker. Uh, it's, you know, people have said, well, people fly on airlines when they're bankrupt. Well, that's, you know, the, the, the safety's regulated by the federal government. You, you pay 300 bucks, and worst case scenario, they cease operations, you're out 300 bucks. Nobody wants to be out 30 to $35,000 when they buy a car that may no longer be supported. Not to mention the fact that if they were to go into bankruptcy, it would almost certainly send all their suppliers into bankruptcy immediately, meaning that they wouldn't be able to make cars anymore. And there not, would, ju not just the big three. And then it starts pulling everybody It out. would start, I mean, it, it would be a crisis that would affect everyone. So it would have to be a deal that was organized in advance and accounted for um, warranties on the cars they might sell. It would have to be a sort of pre-negotiated bankruptcy because for them to just enter bankruptcy and then start figuring out how to, um, you know, what creditors get what would, would cause this ripple, trickle down ripple effect that would absolutely kill the suppliers and their ability to sell cars. Yeah. Chris, what do you think? Bankruptcy well, kills the UAW, or I think it probably does, and everybody else. Um, potentially, I mean, there's again the interconnected network of suppliers, and if you know Chrysler goes down, and a lot of small t suppliers that also you know supply Toyota and Ford, they all hurt. Um, it's it's one of those things where I, I don't know that um, it, it can be anything outside of a prepackaged bankruptcy, or the cars are coming in and sort of giving everybody a get out of jail free card. Um, people probably won't end up buying products from bankrupt automaker. It is one of those long-term purchases uh, that you have to live with day in and day out. Um, and we've seen uh, automakers that have left this country, uh, Peugeot and Citroen, and you know they weren't selling in tremendous volumes to begin with. 
But I, I do think there's still going to be that residual fear that will prevent people from, from buying those vehicles. Okay, John, let's say there is no bankruptcy. Is this the beginning of the end of the UAW anyway? I mean, and I ask that because they used to have a monopoly on automotive labor in the United States. I mean, you couldn't build a car in this country without the UAW organizing your plant. That's no longer the case. Now they've got to compete, and can they? Yeah, I, I don't think it will, it will be the nail on the coffin for the UAW. I think they're going to be around long term. And the reason I say that is because, uh, actually, my civics teacher in high school used to say that the UAW was a yesterday solution to a yesterday problem. And I always disagreed with them because the fact was the UAW is kind of like the current watchdog. I mean, the reason the guy at the Toyota plant makes $35 an hour is because Toyota has to pay as much as the UAW plant across the street or in the other state. Otherwise, the union enters uh, at the Toyota plant. So they're kind of there, uh, even, if, even if they're a minority. They kind of watch guard every worker's rights, every worker's benefits and wages. Um, and if that goes away and suddenly you see this crash of wages, the, the crash of the value of the worker, then I think that just breeds um, you know, another, an, another way for the UAW to get back in. Well, it does and it doesn't because, because that crash is already happening and, and it's called a global economy. I mean, that's where uh, I, I probably agree with you that, yeah, well, even if they go bankrupt, the UAW will continue to exist, although they'll have to make so many concessions, they'll probably be uh, almost a moot issue. But, but what's happening now is it's not about the plant across the street or in a different state. It's about the plant in Mexico or the plant in Southeast Asia or the plant in Eastern Europe that can make cars significantly cheaper. And because of that, it, it, the UAW is yesterday's solution to yesterday's problem. And, and while I can't, uh, while I can't uh, argue that the UAW helped create the, the blue-collar middle class in this country, the global economy the reality there with the global economy is that more than likely that blue-collar middle class is migrating to developing countries. Well, I think, I think the issue right now is that kind of the American worker is overvalued and, and the UAW contributed that. So there's, going, there's a correction happening. Yeah. And, and certainly um, the UAW worker and the American worker in general is going to have to uh, kind of accept lower wages, lower benefits, a lower almost standard of living than they're used to. Yeah. And that's because of this competition from the world, not just from the, the state next door. Yeah. The, the one thing hopefully that they will get as a result of, of agreeing to those concessions and, and these re realigned expectations is job security that they haven't enjoyed for a really long time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if all the automakers can get leaner and meaner and get globally competitive, um, then you know, there, there may be fewer people employed uh, there may be fewer products, but the job security will be a lot greater. Yeah, I'd add one other thing, too, is that uh, with an Obama administration, almost for sure, one of the first things that will be enacted is what they're calling the Employee Free Choice Act, which is going to make it far, far easier for all unions, not just the UAW, but in our discussion, it'll make it far easier for the UAW to go in and organize the transplants, unionize them. And that's what I think the southern senators are doing right now is trying to break the unions back if they get the chance or at least pound it down to the same level of wages and benefits that the transplants are already paying so even if the union does get in it's not going to drive up costs for those companies that that's what i see going on in, in all of this anyway I'm, I'm getting word we're actually having some technical difficulties so 
We're actually going to wind this conversation down right now. But for those of you who are still with us here, thanks so much for tuning in with John Neff from, uh, from Autoblog, with Chris Pockert from Autoblog, and with Mike DeShane from CarAndDriver.com. Thanks, you guys, for helping us conduct this experiment in live webcasting. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.